0: Hey everybody, welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of Mile Marker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of Milemarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Hey everybody, welcome to Connected. I am super excited today to be joined by not only a good friend, but somebody who I think is one of the more impressive people in the industry. Brad Johnson, who is a principal and co-founder at Triad Partners. He's also the host of a podcast called Do Business, Do Life, one of my personal favorites that he just launched a couple of months ago. Brad, welcome to the show. What's up, Kyle? Glad to be here. Absolutely, man. Thanks for coming on. So Brad, I, I gave a little bit of an introduction there, but for those who don't know who you are, give us the, the introduction to Brad Johnson. All right, I'll, I'll try to make it short and sweet. Um, <laughs> I was a uh, IT
1: major in college. That got my first job at Payless Shoe Source, the, the now infamous Payless Shoe Source, because it's no longer in business. But worked at their corporate office, and I was there a few years. And I just, it wasn't for me. It was a great company, great people, but I kind of, I don't know if the world of finance drew me to it. I just remember being in a cubicle at Payless, like researching Google was IPOing, Chipotle was IPOing, Under Armour was IPOing, and I was like doing all this diligent research to uh, get in. And that was, so I'd always just been interested in the stock market. And then I was studying for my CFP remotely through the through Kansas State University. And so basically I was all set to, I'd convinced my wife that I was gonna go be a financial advisor. I'd interviewed with the usual suspects at that time, Ameriprise, Ed Jones, John Hancock. And I was just getting ready to take a job and move our family to Kansas City, just a bigger market. My wife at the time was a school teacher in Topeka, Kansas. About that time, I got a call from a buddy named Sean, who's actually now a partner at Triad Partners. And that was really my intro into the world of more what I would call insurance brokerage. Started with the company right down the road, Advisors Excel. And that was an incredible run. He was one of the early guys there. I was one of the early guys there and saw it go from basically a company no one had ever heard of to one of the largest players in the space from a handful of team members to, a you know, north of a thousand probably now. And so, yeah, that was really my entry into finance and cold calling financial advisors, hundred dials a day, the standard. How I think a lot of people got into this space, just grinding. I was very fortunate because I had the opportunity to just grow up in finance next to some of the the top independent financial advisors from the space. So just tried to be a student, learn as much as I could, ask a lot of questions and that's really the semi-short version to, yeah. to how I got to Triad today.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into a lot of those things, so I appreciate you sharing that. So this show's called Connected, and it's all about building better connections, whether that's with technology or other people. And Brad, I've known you for a while, and, and I have seen this with my own two eyes, but you are personally great at connecting with others. And you've spent time with hundreds of elite advisors coaching them, talking to them, being around them at events. So one of the questions I love to ask guests is what advice would you give to the person listening to this that wants to build great connections or even better connections than they currently are? Such
1: a simple question, Kyle. And there's so many ways I could go with this, but I think if I was gonna narrow it down to just the core that I've had success with, don't make it about you. Or in this instance, don't make it about me. There's all kinds of books out there. Some of my favorites, one of my favorites of all time, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I feel like it's the combination of of reading books like that and then also growing up small town Kansas, Midwest. Minneapolis, Kansas, it's a town of 2,000 people. It exists, it's out there if you're listening in. Most people are like, how'd you get to Kansas? I'm like, well, it's easy, you're born here. That's how people get here. But on that note, I remember as a kid, it was just wired into me to treat others as I'd wanna be treated because the truth is, you know, everybody goes through their formative years of kind of being a jerk, maybe in the junior high, high school area. I feel like small town Kansas kind of is the kryptonite for that because your parents, your grandparents, if you're being a jerk in town, they know about it by the time you get home and they're gonna address it, right? So I feel like that was a, a little, something that I was fortunate to grow up with that small Kansas mentality where it's just always it's been hardwired into me from the early days of treat others as you wanna be treated. And I think the natural evolution of that going into a relationship business, which is finance, which is podcasting, you know, if you truly think about connecting, that's what we're doing right now, Kyle. We're having a, a conversation that we hope can serve others. There's a, a story in how to influence and influence people. And it's Dale Carnegie, the author, talking about how him and his wife went to a dinner party and he had the most amazing time. And his wife's like, really, tell me about it. And the host of the dinner party was some attorney or lawyer. And all he did was ask Dale Carnegie about himself for 60 minutes. So the punchline of that story is like the guy just asked him about himself. And he talked about himself for like an hour straight had the best time of his life. It's everybody's favorite subject matter, right? It's themselves. And so I think just in business, if you start with the end in mind, whether it's a podcast, how do I serve the listener? whether it's your business model, how do I serve the end client first? It's kind of the Zig Ziglar. If you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get what they, what you want in life. And so I've just found in connections, that's how it works. Like if you serve others, people are like, man, that Kyle Van Pelt's a pretty good dude. And then they start talking about you when you're not around, which leads to intros, connections,
0: business opportunities, all, all of the above. Ah, I love that. I love that. So I want to I wanna go uh, maybe a layer deeper or, or add some depth to this question. So I think that is incredible advice if you've got a lot of time with somebody. But for a lot of the listeners of this show would be financial advisors, and they are getting a, a new prospect in the door, and they want to know, how do I connect with this person quickly? I might not have an entire dinner party, but I want them to feel comfortable with me so that I have a better shot of winning their business. Any any quick tips off the top of your head of how to how to quickly build rapport and connection with a with a prospect if you're a financial advisor?
1: Yeah, one of my friends, actually Anthony up in Chicago, he's been on my show was a few episodes back. His quote that I love to borrow is, How do you put a scratch in their record? And we've all seen that that TV show scene where the DJ scratches the record and everybody looks over. And I think oftentimes in finance, what I've seen from experience when advisors are like, man, I'm just, there's people coming in the front door, but I'm just really struggling. They say like, oh, you sound like my advisor I already work with, what's the difference? Or they get a a lot of, I wanna think about it. I think oftentimes it's because we are in a world of numbers and spreadsheets and it's really easy. In fact, sometimes I feel like it's a little bit of a defense mechanism for advisors, it's like, if I go into the spreadsheet, I know how that works, where human relationships, guess what? It takes a little bit of feeling out. Let me understand this person. Let me ask them questions. How do they tick differently than you know the last prospector client that came in and sat down with me? And so a few thoughts is ask questions. Don't make assumptions. Don't treat everybody the same because specifically our clientele works with a lot of retirees. And I know every retirement story, those are different. You know, some people want to go check off bucket list trips. Some people are homebodies and want to finish the backyard. Some people want to make sure they're at every grandkid's sports game. And so until you understand that as an advisor, it doesn't really matter what financial plan, because that's the that's like the variables and the logistics. I would say go to the other side of the equal sign, start with the end in mind, figure out what is a perfect retirement for them. And that's experiential. And that's a lot more emotional than it is black and white numbers and math. And so that's where if you ask great questions and great follow-up questions, just like you just did a second ago, you kind of are able to peel back the onion. And that's where connections start. Because if I know this 65 year old couple, the most important thing in the world to them is always show up at 12 year old granddaughter's softball game. Now I can build a financial plan that helps make that happen, even if they're a few states away, right? I think that's the core of connection is understanding first. You know, you really have to seek to understand.
0: Oh, I love that. I think that's amazing. I think that... The gist of what I heard a lot of that there is how do you move beyond the numbers and the spreadsheets into the emotions? Because I think one common thing that we hear with a lot of the advisors and folks we talk to is people coming in the door might be coming in with the financial problem or they're just they're nervous or they're anxious about Am I going to be okay? Are are we going to be successful in retirement? Are we going to have enough money? All of these what if questions. And the great ones are the ones who flip those questions into dreams and goals, and you change those sort of negative or anxious emotions into really positive emotions. Um, And then you start to build the plans from there. So I love that answer. I love that response. This start with the end in mind. It seems to be relevant for for so much in life. Staying on the theme of connections and, and going a little bit deeper, I have been impressed as I've I've looked at your career over time. You've built a network of incredible people. Um, and I think it's safe to say that that's certainly been a big factor in your success this far. But my question revolves around, I think a lot of people, especially in our industry, have the opportunity to meet quote-unquote high-status people or or people who a lot would love to have in their network but you've had the privilege of not only meeting them, but you now call some of them friends and they're sort of a part of your network and it went beyond just that initial meeting. So my question is, what do you think it takes to not only just meet those people, be in the rooms with those people, but build connections that lead to them truly becoming a part of your network and having sort of long lasting friendships?
1: So Kyle, I love this question. What I love about finance is there is almost unlimited opportunity to get in the right rooms. We've been to a number of conferences. I know, actually I think we were just talking about what's your go-to conference, what's my go-to conference. If you look at that when it comes to relationships and connections, that's like a first date. I can think of a number of conferences where I'm like, wow, that, you know, I really enjoyed that conversation, but that's basically where it stops. Where it's like, oh yeah, who was that random dude or that random girl that I talked to 3 years ago at that random conference same with the podcast so think of those like stages and stages can be physical in person like a conference like jolt that i was just out in vegas or they can be virtual like this one right now we have a virtual stage kyle and brad are sharing it right now so for me it's what happens afterwards and so what i tried to to go back to kind of the previous conversation if you start to understand what makes kyle van pelt tick I know you're a family man. I know you have kids. I know you care about those kids. I know you have a wife, you care about your wife. And one of the things I always try to do when you came on my podcast, prime example, you were gifting me your most precious resource, which is your time. That's a finite thing. We all have an equal amount of that, regardless of the money in the bank account. So don't take the gift of time for granted from anyone. You gifted your time to hop on my show, to share thoughts on just your perspective. You've been right in the mix of it, this evolution of the finance world and technology and where it all comes together. You then share that with my audience, who I want to make sure every guest that I have come on my show, I bring a high caliber guest, a great human, a great somebody that's focused on a different area that can serve them, right? so. I'm starting with my end in mind. So back to my own advice. What's on the other side of the equal sign? For me, the Do Business Do Life podcast audience. That's who I'm trying to serve. So who are the variables? Bring Kyle on. Okay. Now you came on. Now what's my follow up? I've always, and this is maybe John Ruland's influence, giftology. I've always tried to show gratitude to everyone in life that that maybe I want to make sure I deepen that relationship, that connection and so i've had a number of new york times bestsellers, just very successful business people keynote speakers that charge 100 150 200k for an hour of their time they go on everybody else's podcast and sometimes they're lucky if they get a follow-up email like hey your episode's live and they've told me this and in turn i send a handwritten note a nice gift and typically i include the whole crew if they've got a family in that so that it benefits everybody those that they love as well and then i also try to when i start to understand their business make referrals hey have you ever connected with such and such and on the episode i just did with john rule we actually got deep into this because i i learned from him how to make a great introduction that's a double opt-in where both parties agree to it and then you connect them in a meaningful more than just a random hey, meet Kyle sort of way. So I think I'm, I'm going a little deep on this one, but I think the biggest thing is don't make it a one and done first date. If it's somebody that you want to connect with, send that follow up text, send that follow up gift. Oftentimes you meet so many people at a conference, like I will literally take a selfie picture with them and then text the number. So we're both connected and we both remember, oh yeah, that was that conversation. So. There's lots of little things um, that I've just learned from some other friends that are master networkers and connectors over the years. But I think the biggest thing is don't let it just be a first date, continue the conversation and continue to add value and show gratitude to them.
0: Yeah i want to talk a little bit about the adding value thing because if you read books on on networking like uh, one of my favorites is never eat alone or there's other books like this everybody talks about hey for for high status people you have to add value because everybody's always asking and asking and asking for them but i think a lot of people and i know you i used to struggle with this a lot get hung up on what does add value look like to somebody who seemingly doesn't need anything from you And it could be really small things, sending articles or things like that. But I kind of want to, you know, maybe twofold question is how would you define value in that scenario to a higher value person potentially? And is it, I guess, psychologically, is it as overwhelming as a lot of people think, or do most people just want to, you know, to truly build connection? And maybe some of those people don't even think of themselves as, as high status as we might think of them as. So I think the first thing, Kyle, to add value, you have to be more valuable
1: over time. And if I look back to my personal growth journey, I mean, the truth is I was a small town Kansas kid, was not some Ivy League school kid, and sports was kind of that avenue into college for me, college football, and then from there, when I got into the world of finance, as many what I would call sales-driven organizations are, it becomes about personal growth because, you know, if you're gonna cold call, it's like, wait, how do I do that? I should read a book on it. And so one of the things we have in my house is readers are leaders. And because of that, because I look at what are core themes, the most successful people in life, they tend to be common attributes. And one of those things is almost every super successful person I've ever crossed paths with, they're typically well-read, not all of them, but most are well-read and sometimes that's an audible book. They might just listen on their commute, all of that. I think the biggest thing is look at yourself as your biggest investment you can make. And The Richest Man in Babylon, which was a book I read early in my personal growth, it says take 10% of what you make and invest it back into yourself. That's when I started paying for masterminds. That's how I originally got connected with Michael Hyatt in a group of 12, 14 entrepreneurs, which If I look, that was why my podcast came to exist because I took a problem. I can't get a bunch of successful financial advisors all together for a call. And the solution was, Hey, turn that into a podcast. Then honestly, if it wasn't for that podcast, I don't know that this conversation would be happening right now, Kyle. And so it's kind of these butterfly effect decisions you make in life. And for me, you can shortcut some of that because every mentor almost in the world is available free at your library in a book. If you want the in-person connection with people still living, you can typically, if you're willing to invest out of your own pocket, pay to be in the right rooms. And so you can kind of shortcut and accelerate those learning curves. And that's what I would recommend is as long as your personal knowledge, you're investing in that and growing that while at the same time getting in the right rooms, the truth is a guy like, let's use Michael Hyatt. He wants to be a great dad. He wants to be a great grandfather if i share something like hey the family board meeting that i've shared with the number of people with him that adds value and that's a completely different domain than business right so you can add value in so many ways personal health working out like whatever your interests are odds are if you've leveled up enough in that area of your life it can add value to others and honestly don't listen to that little head that little voice inside of our heads that we all have of like The imposter syndrome, the way I look at it is we're all humans, and if this is something that adds value to a number of humans, it will probably add value to just about anybody if it's the right domain. So that's personally how I view it. That might be a little different than others, but that's worked pretty well for me.
0: No, that's amazing because, you know, I had never heard of the family board meeting until you shared it with me when we were hanging out one time and it's great so for the for the audience that hasn't heard of this you should check it out it's a book called the family board meeting i'd also encourage you to go listen to the episode that brad did with the author on his podcast do business do life we'll link that up in the show notes here Um, excellent concept and the reason i bring that up is you can almost build like a value toolbox in some ways because you could share that family board meeting over and over and over again and maybe you're sharing it a lot as brad johnson but the person receiving it that's the first time maybe they've ever heard about it. And so I think there's a lot of these things in life where we do things over and over again, but it's the first time somebody else has heard of it. So it's, you know, family board meeting, which I know added great value to my life. And you've shared that with a lot of people, whether it's health or fitness or whatever it is, find that common ground, go to your value toolbox and pull it out and go, oh, you like these things, have you have you heard this? And and that's a great way of creating value. So I love that, That's a, that's a great answer, man.
1: Well, and, and the thing is like, if you look at life of, Hey, there's these other people that I want to add value to no different than you want to add value to those that you love in your life, your family. This is completely corny, but this is the way you connect with people. So back in the day when everybody in my space was cold calling, just hundred dials a day, pick up the phone. I remember I was trying to recruit Ron Carson as a client. So I'd read his book, tested in the trenches obviously at the time he was one of LPL's largest producers. I was in the fixed insurance business, so I I didn't even know if he did that business line or not, but he was kind of one of the godfathers in the space of just, wow, this is a guy that's doing big things and kind of on the front edge of where finance is going. So rather than just, well, by the way, I did try to cold call him for about a year and how that were about five gatekeepers, you know, constantly stiff arming me. So then I read somewhere in an article or a book, that he loved red wine he was a pilot flew himself and he he was a nebraska farm kid i was a kansas farm kid so how i connected with ron was i sent him back in the day before drones it was like you can't see this on video but basically my arm's length it was those remote control helicopters back when those were a thing on amazon and so i got like a big one it was probably a 150 75 remote control helicopter I mailed it to him with a handwritten note that basically said from one farm kid to another, I know you're a pilot. Now you can be one without having to leave your living room. And, and Ron, I remember I was sitting at my cubicle and the phone rings and it's Ron Carson calling me back, just saying, dude, that was creative. Thanks. I've never seen anything like that. Then he asked me about myself, like, okay, what what do you do? Like, what company do you work for again? And so you can get creative, like why not? Have fun. That's how you show up differently. You don't have to do some templated blanket newsletter that you send to everybody. And the more you know about people, the more you know what makes them tick, which means then you can do special, cool things to connect on a different level. So I, I feel like we've just turned this into a hundred percent, the connection podcast, Kyle, that's, okay. but that's probably the way I'm wired. So yeah, but that's I hope this is for. helpful.
0: Yeah, that's what it's for. And and we're going to we're going to segue into industry here in a second, but but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this one other thing when it comes to connecting with people. So when I was on your show and I had the privilege of being there, we talked about building an 11-star experience technology-wise. But I want to flip the script. So from everything I've seen at Triad and and had the privilege of attending a couple of of events or you call them experiences, I mean, you guys build epic experiences for the the people who affiliate with you. And I know this isn't all Brad. A lot of it's your team, but I kind of want there's a lot of people listening to this who do client events who do all kinds of different things. As a form of building connection, how do you guys get deep enough to really make it different? Because I, I think every event has sort of the same elements, right? You're going to you know you're going to have people show up. you're going to have networking. you're going to have a meal. you're going to have these things, but you always elevate it. So I'd love to just kind of hand you the mic on how do we build connections to great experiences and in-person events? I believe
1: it starts with the intention first and understanding, I'm just going to go back to starting with the end in mind, understanding who is attending. And we call them experiences versus events. And here's why words matter. And we want to set the intention right out of the gates, what we want this to be. So at triad, we call them triad, bad words. We do experiences. We don't do events. Experiences create lifelong memories. Events blend into one another because everybody's been to hundreds of events in their lifetime. And so if we're gonna create lifetime memories, you have to start with the intention of who's going to be there. Uh, Our Founders Retreat is coming up in just a couple weeks. In fact, I just did a meeting this morning on it. Our Founders Retreat is for founders, for their significant others. And then we believe entrepreneurs, which is independent advisors at their core, we believe they should decide What does a world-class experience look like for them? So for some, that's just a business retreat where, hey, I'm just gonna come solo, leaving the spouse significant other at home. For others, it's, hey, I want my significant other there. We're doing it in Lake Tahoe. This is gonna be an incredible experience. I want him or her there. For others, myself included, Sean included, we're bringing our whole family. So it'll be Brad, Sarah, and the three kids, age 13 to age seven. So if I now know this is the mix of the people in the room, Now, how do I retrofit the experience to check the boxes for all of those individuals? A few examples. Selfishly, I read Way of the Warrior Kid a number of years back with my kids, Jocko Willick. He talks about doing jujitsu with your kids. That's been on the Johnson list of things I want to learn with my kids, right? So I'm I'm starting as a student just like they are. So we're bringing in Henner Gracie into Lake Tahoe and he's going to be doing morning jujitsu lessons, some kids only, some adults only, and can do it all together. So we're bringing in access is another keyword for experiences. Keynotes are all well and good, and I've learned a lot from keynotes, but the way a keynote works at an event is said speaker walks on stage, get their little intro, kills it for an hour, while everybody in the audience scribbles down as many notes as they can, and then they disappear in the green room never to be seen again. Well, the way we look at our lineup, I don't even call them speakers because they're literally a part of the experience. So Henry Gracie will be there the whole time. So he will be interacting. He will be hanging out. Jason Kalipa, former CrossFit Games champion. He will be leading morning workouts. He will also be there with his entire family. Chris Smith of the Campfire Effect. He'll be there with his wife, Melissa, and their five kids. So just like Access, we want to create a different version of that where our strategic partners are part of the experience doing the experience with our members versus this separation of here's the person on stage they disappear you have to buy some course or mastermind group or something to be a part of that and so that's been one of the biggest things is we just want to separate this like glass wall that for some reason gets put up at a lot of events and we want to integrate the experience for access because what i've found in life is all of the breakthroughs come when you go deeper Instead of shallow, where it's like, oh, that was a cool one hour keynote that I forgot half of the great breakthroughs happen over a dinner table, over a cocktail to where people are just going deeper and just where you've
0: got more time to kind of go to that level. So that's a that's a bit of how we've thought about it. I think that's the mic drop moment so far in this episode is, you know, all of the breakthroughs come when you go deeper whether it's building connections for your network, whether it's trying to create connections with new prospects, I think that's really the one liner that encompasses all of it is, are you willing to be vulnerable enough to go deeper with people and not just ask the same questions or provide the same experience that everybody's gonna provide? And I think one thing that I would I would add to what you're saying is you aren't afraid to do things differently, whereas you, you kind of take risks. And if some people don't like it, so what? I mean, this is what we're aiming to do. So that's really great, man. I appreciate you sharing well, that. Kyle, just a couple other thoughts, because we look at it from, we call them triad members. That's another bad word. We
1: don't say advisors or agents here. We say members because we want this to feel a lot more like a high-end country club or a high-end mastermind that, that's curated. And the truth is we don't want to let everybody in because we want to maintain a certain curation of the group around being growth-minded, being people we wanna do business and do life with. But for example, we, because we know a, a lot of kids are gonna be there, our check-in table experience is completely different. Back to the 11 store, there's literally like a little pop-up store with all the stuff kids like the pop heads, the I forget Nash came up. My, I asked my son, I'm like, what would be cool for kids, and he's like, what about little mini Legos boxes that kids can pick? And I was like, cool, let's do that. So looking at it through the kids lens, like last year we had a video game trailer that kids were in there. And actually one of my clients, Keith was in there. I was like, Keith, how old are you again? This is for the kids. So like, like that, but then also I view our partners on the, most people would call them vendors. I call them partners. So for example, we'll have a number of insurance carriers represented out there. Guess what? Insurance carriers want the same thing. They just want to connect and make, create relationships and every other conference they go to they've got to work a booth and they've got to be in this expo hall with and handing out brochures and guess what they hate it as much as anybody and so we have a rule we're like no booths allowed at triad experiences just be a part of it come grab dinner and be a part of the community because we believe that's where all the best business relationships are formed it's not over a booth handing out some random brochure to the person that walks by so we've also tried to incorporate that from the uh from the vendor, what most people would, I guess, title vendor side as well. Ah,
0: I love it. Well, Andy just provided me a perfect segue. So I have absolutely loved this conversation about how we connect better with people, but I also wanna talk a little bit about insurance. So you're a co-founder and principal at Triad Partners, which in my opinion is changing the game for providing insurance solutions on behalf of advisors or members in your case, I'd love for you to drop some knowledge on what's going on in the insurance industry right now. Because I think, and I I know you and I've talked about this offline before, a lot of financial advisors wrote off insurance in many cases as as a quote unquote bad word long ago, and they haven't really revisited the topic ever since. And part of this conversation has been about personal growth, lifelong learning, and I think so much has changed in the insurance industry over the past handful of years. So, you know, I wanna start by just saying, okay, Brad, blank canvas, fresh mind, how should advisors be thinking about insurance in their practice right now?
1: I think sometimes on this stuff, Kyle, you have to do a little history lesson and it's how, how did we arrive to this point? And I think until you understand that, it's hard to say, okay, well, why do we do things the way we do them today? And the truth is most of finance, from my experience, and this is regardless of whether it's on the security side or on the insurance side, was created as distribution. Product was made to be distributed. So if you look at how like the New York Stock Exchange came to be, back in the day, people had little paper slips that represented a a percentage or a piece of a company and they were saying, here's why you should buy this piece of this company for this price, higher or lower or whatever. And that was back in the day, a stockbroker, right? Well, what were they really doing? They were selling shares of a company as a stock. And that was a lot more selling than it was building a financial plan, right? It was like, boom, buy this, okay, here's the, so it was bartering basically over pieces of company. Well, look at insurance. A lot of people don't know about the FMO space, IMO, NMO. All of those are the same acronym field marketing organization national marketing organization independent marketing organization well the truth is how did an fmo come to be in 1995 a certain sort of a fixed annuity was created called an indexed annuity alliance was one of the insurance carriers the individual insurance agents were out in the field so they needed an organization to market insurance products to the field Not too different than a stockbroker, right? Hence a BD, broker-dealer. Same thing on, on that side of the house. And so back then, everybody was selling products and saying, hey, person, individual, whether it was an insurance agent or a financial advisor or a series seven, series six, whatever the licensing was required, go sell this thing to people and here's how to sell it. And so now we arrive at today and what I feel like is happening it's this creative destruction look at the story of it's been way overused but it'll it'll help for the kodak was actually the company that invented the digital camera well then they just sat on it and then it ate them alive later on so as a financial advisor don't be kodak right and if we see this evolution happening which is what was two separate worlds the insurance world the securities world. What I've seen happen, I got in this business in 07, when I was 26 years old. Now we're 2023, it's all yeah. merging. And it's either merged, or it's like kind of this like jammed together ugly mess, depending on what distribution group you're in, right? But go back, start with the end in mind. Who are we tr- actually trying to serve? Well, let's start with your clients. And for our distribution at Triad Partners, Our advisors are independent members out there. They're typically serving a pre-retiree and retiree class. There are certain guarantees that segment of the world, because guess what? They went from working the accumulation years to distribution. Now I have a nest egg. So where a lot of our triad members are just thriving is that transition from accumulation to distribution. The united states of america thanks to erisa back in the 70s did away with kind of the pension that most companies did back in the day and now we've got these 401ks that yeah they've got a million two million three million four million in them but it went from a done for you model to a do-it-yourself model and so back to your question if you're an advisor out there and if you're truly i think there's also been a blend where fiduciary gets confused with Fioma. Those are two different terms. And I think in our industry, what happens a lot is terms are weaponized for marketing. But if you look at fiduciary, that by itself, of which I think pretty much, well, as a Series 65, legally, you need to operate under that. Fiduciary to me means giving your clients access to as many financial tools as possible in your financial toolbox. And then if you're gonna be a fiduciary legally, it's do what's in the best interest of your client legally, well, to me, it's hard to be a fiduciary if you have eliminated full sections out of your financial toolbox. So I know I've had the conversation with a lot of fee and guys, oh, I'll just refer it down the street. We all know if a million dollar prospect walks through the door, I've seen probably on one hand in a decade and a half in this space, somebody ever referring that person down the street to somebody else. So for me, it's really figuring out what is that product suite? What are the tools? and making sure for your clients, for your prospects, that you've got all of the best in class tools in there to serve them. And, and that's on all sides of the fence. That's AUM, that's insurance, whether it's life insurance, annuities for income planning. A lot of our triad members, they would just simply say, hey, I, I've got access to all of these tools when it comes to fixed income and retirement. Let's hand select which one's the best choice for you. It's getting out of a selling conversation into an actual holistic goal-based planning scenario of which then you're just analyzing the set tools that get the job done most efficiently. And I think, I'll get off my soapbox here, Kyle, but I think most advisors, if you look at fiduciary through that lens of just have as many tools as possible and then do my best job to pick the best tool to accomplish the job most efficiently, I've found I've never had an advisor argue that logic with me, and that's my argument to making sure there is something where you're checking that box for the clients that need it, whether it's a strategic partnership, referral relationship, if you are a fee-only guy, or potentially expanding the offerings for your client base, but just making sure you've got the best-in-class tools to solve the need. I love it. Of day. I,
0: I love it. I love it. And then, okay, so... Prefacing that, we talked about how much I think things have changed in the insurance space. I mean, the the invention of fee-only insurance products that we've seen a lot of people come out with now to you know outsourced fee-only partners like a DPL financial or things like that. Where do you see things heading in the insurance industry? What's kind of the future of of what's coming down the pipe with all of these partners and why it may be an even better tool in the fiduciary toolbox headed forward?
1: The insurance side is really led by, by country demographics. It's the best way to put it. So I've, I've been on the fixed insurance side since March of 07 was when I started in this space. There's two things that have really, I I don't know what the market share was at the time when I got in, but it, I believe it went from like a 20, 30 billion industry to it's approaching almost a hundred billion now and that's in like a decade and a half so so the demand and the need is there but a lot of it is just the aging baby boomer population as you you have this massive wave of the the boomers that were born you know in the 50s what what 46 to 54 I think or something like that and so now they're i mean it's my parents they're reti- you know they're in their young 70s hitting retirement and so i think the demand is based on some sort of products with some security or some sort of guarantees, which is why insurance products are designed in the first place. It's a it's a pooling of risk, the law of large numbers, to create certain guarantees for a population of people. And so on that front, I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. And now we're starting to see. So when I was cold calling back in 07, if I talked to a Series 65 guy or a Series 7 guy, it was almost like, dial tone, right? We're building out our RIA right now. We brought on some world-class talent from a number of the large RIAs right down the road in Kansas City. But these are groups with a 100 billion plus under their umbrella. And here's real world stats. One of those groups that I don't know how many hundreds of million of revenue they generate annually, their insurance revenue was less, it was like around a few million. So if you, look, if you look at the discrepancy there, some of the largest RIAs in the world, let alone the US, here's their revenue off of securities AUM fee-based business and it, their insurance is almost non-existent. So that shows you just such a gap there. And Kyle, this is where you guys, I know at MileMarker, have really dipped your toe in the water. Oftentimes that happens because the technology doesn't talk to each other very well. And so, one of the things we're looking at at Triad is how do we continue to make that one planning conversation versus these disjointed, hey, I talked to the securities desk over here, the life insurance desk over here, the annuity desk over here, because the truth is until you fix that, most advisors, it's going to be so painful to actually do holistic planning in all of those worlds. They'll be like, man, I'd love to, but I just can't even figure out how to get these two systems to talk to each other so that's one of the places we're focusing because we know the end consumer the truth is they don't really care they just want they want a world-class financial plan that addresses their goals where they can sleep well at night at the end of the day and the problem is a lot of the technology a lot of the systems are so disjointed the advisors that do want to do that it's just it's painful to try to actually fulfill that need. So I think there's a number of things, but as we look forward, the technology is continuing to talk and work better and better because there's companies like us and yours that are investing heavily in that. And so I think those on the front edge of that, the ones that make it easiest are going to start winning a ton of business. And then probably that that trend will speed up and, and that evolution will continue down that
0: path. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I, I'd be remiss without saying. I, I am I'm amazed at how many prospects are coming in our door right now looking for ways to combine insurance data with equity data because it's just so much focus on the technology evolution was on ETFs, mutual funds, all of those sort of things. And because... All of, it, all of the financial industry's business was done on an account by account basis. Insurance was over here, equities were over here, alternatives were over here. But now that everybody's working off of the household model, they want everything centralized under one idea. You know, we're almost having to re-architect how the industry works from a data perspective, which is really fascinating. So I think you're right. I think the firms that we see that are growing the fastest, Are what I would call full service firms. They're not trying to say this is the one thing we do that's not differentiated enough anymore. Um, And they want to be able to offer a wide range of everything to make sure you're serving what the client needs. Um, And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, it's interesting when you said, you know, the client doesn't care about what that product might be or whatever it is. I, I kind of equate that to, you know, when a plumber comes in to put stuff in your house, you're not going, well, what brand of PVC pipe are you using to put into the house? It's like, I just want the plumbing to be correct. And, and with the end in mind, I want this to work properly, make sure my water bill stays right, and that we're gonna have a safe house and it's not gonna bust and leak all over the place and give me a huge insurance claim.
1: Yeah, what, what creates anxiety is uncertainty. Yes. And what I've seen a lot of, because back to how did, The world of finance personal financial planning i should say how did that come to be well most of it started with the stock broker that was selling stocks then it went to the life insurance agent that was knocking on your door selling you a life insurance policy when you bought your first home and so it's been a sales distribution network that regardless of equities or insurance that most people have it's really the religion of whatever financial church that individual advisor grew up in Well. Now, fast forward, what has that created for a retiree? It's created a kitchen junk tour of an experience when it comes to their financial plan because they've got the life insurance policy they bought when they first got married. Then they've got the kid's life insurance policies. Then they've got, oh, here's my old company's 401k. Then it's like, oh yeah, and I was told to start a Roth IRA. So that's over here. And so there's like statements, right? This like slammed into a drawer. The financial advisors that win long-term will be the ones that most intuitively take that kitchen junk drawer experience that most clients currently have, or like, I haven't even started the kitchen junk drawer experience because I was too busy, like paying for kids college or whatever, and create an intuitive technology, friendly, minimalistic experience where it's organized and it's like, oh, all your boxes are checked. And yes, you can take that family trip once a year for 10,000 bucks because we've already allocated a bucket for family trip experiences. And there's pieces of that I've seen that different companies are starting to fix, but until there's an intuitive experience, that's why so many of our firms use e-money because they at least had like a portal that was kind of like a tidy little place, electronic friendly, a vault that people could put it. But even that has its disjointedness of, well, insurance doesn't work that great in there currently so there's little technologies that have gotten pieces of that right but i believe kyle long term which it's great business that you're in long term the ones that look at amazon it started out selling books and now the user experience is so easy and friendly they could be charging me five bucks more a book but i can just tap one time and it shows up at my house a day later so i'm going to pay for the convenience so how do you create that eleven-star, super-intuitive, easy experience for your financial planning clients? Those will be the companies that win long-term.
0: I love it. All right, I know uh, we're 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 getting close to time here, but I've just got a couple more questions that I'd love to get your insights on. I loved the story from your most recent podcast interview with Anthony from from Goldstone about how your your relationship started. It started with a sales call. You know, at Mile Marker, we care about helping firms grow and supercharge their growth. And I believe the core of all growth is sales. So when I heard that story on your podcast, I loved it. I would love for you to share a little bit about what do you think advisors are missing about sales or what are they getting wrong? Because I think that is something that if everybody gets better at it, their business is gonna be better, their life's gonna be better, all of that sort of stuff.
1: I love that you love sales. Kyle, and I believe sales, I believe it has a bad rap because everybody's unfortunately had a bad sales experience in their life, whether it was the the used car lot or wherever that happened for you, the unsolicited telemarketer on your cell phone. Sales to me, how I define it, is to transfer of belief. I believe to have belief you have to have conviction. And where i've seen the disconnect oftentimes and it's typically early on it's young advisors i remember when i got into this business i was reading a script that if i'm honest with myself i didn't truly believe it it was just words on a piece of paper that would get this prospect from a prospect to a client and it was something that you know i borrowed from somebody else so i believe at the advisor level to be convicted and have a belief in what you're selling you actually have to do the work to build something that serves people. Now that could be, I know most of our triad members, they're doing a CFP level five rural financial plan. That takes a lot of work and typically takes a team to pull off. Also you can have belief and conviction around selling a life insurance policy to newlyweds too, because it's like, Hey, if something happens, to either one of you, you want to make sure that the remaining spouse isn't stuck with the mortgage they can't afford. So whatever that thing is, I believe it starts with belief and conviction. And then it should truly be a process that serves the person that doesn't slam them into said product that you sell everybody. That's I think sometimes the gray area that we get caught in because of course financial advisors have to make a living too. And if you're not making sales, you're not converting, that's where the pressure comes in. But I'll borrow words from one of my good friends and strategic partners, Chris Smith. And it's the same way we approach our members at Triad, we're gonna support our members more than they've ever been supported. And we're going to challenge them more than they've ever been challenged. And I think the best advisors that I see walk that line because the truth is if a prospect comes in and they're like, hey, Kyle, you know, I know GameStop was the big one around COVID where, you know, everybody was day trading GameStop. If they come in and they say, hey, Kyle, I want you to be my financial advisor. I want to put 500K in GameStop. A financial advisor sure can do that, but are you truly advising? And so what we do is we create a difference between what we call being a financial advisor and being a financial leader. And the truth is a great leader sometimes tells you things you don't want to hear. A great coach, I, I know you've had some coaches in your baseball days. I know I've had some coaches in my football days. A great coach, just like a great parent, does not always say yes sometimes they challenge your thinking sometimes they create resistance sometimes they make you work your ass off harder than you thought you could and i believe a great financial advisor sometimes has a lot of those same characteristics where if they truly ask the right questions you're here point a you want to get here point b guess what what gets you to point b is sometimes making the hard choices of not spending of not throwing all your money in the hot stock of the day That's the thing for me is where you get that conviction that then leads to more sales and more conversions is truly believing in what you're offering. And if you're not doing great planning or or selling great products you truly believe in, it's really hard to get there. It's just that then you're the used car guy on the lot just trying to sell whatever inventory you have behind you. So that's kind of high level how I look at it anyway.
0: No, I absolutely love that. I've said a couple of times ETFs, equities, all of these things. I mean, everybody has access to the same ingredients. It really does come down to what recipe are you building with those ingredients, right? And so I love the idea of do you have belief in the process that you're putting forth and the way that you can lead clients? Because that's going to allow you to have the conviction to transfer that belief, I think everybody believes you should you should invest, you should put your money to work, you should let your money work for you. So no matter who they go see, they're going to hear that. But to truly be great at sales, you should have belief in your process and why working with you is better than working with the person down the street. So I think that answer is great. And can you communicate
1: that in a way that they get it, Kyle? Part of being a great advisor is not talking it graduate PhD level, which unfortunately I've heard advisors that do with an acronym every other word, the best teachers take something super complicated and they break it down to the simplest core philosophies that are easy to understand at like a fifth grade level. If you're an advisor out there listening to this, big words, it's actually more of a defense mechanism that I've seen, Kyle, where it's like, I don't wanna sound stupid, so I'll just say words they don't understand. Well, the the best advisors I've ever dealt with they explain it in a way my kids could understand. It. And that's why they get all all the wins. That's why everybody's like, oh, I've never heard it explained this way before. We should definitely do that. Proceed. That could be a whole nother probably episode if we wanted it to
0: be. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, we could keep talking for for hours, but I've got just two questions left for you as we as we wrap up here. I, I think sales is hard work. And and you mentioned growing up on a farm in Kansas. I know that's a big part of your story. This is a question I love to ask people, and I'd love your perspective on it but farms are synonymous with hard work. And I think to be successful, success requires hard work. And I know you to be a very hard worker, but as everything is transferred to the knowledge economy where a lot of what work looks like today is sitting in front of a computer, you know, it's maybe making phone calls, it's things like that. I'd love for you to comment a little bit on what do you think hard work looks like today in the era of knowledge work? How can you be a hard worker?
1: One of my favorite books in the world, which is funny because this is a prime example, it wasn't even written. Uh, it's called The Almanac of Naval. A guy named Naval Ravikant, who I would call a mentor from afar. Follow him on Twitter if you're out on Twitter. So he founded Angel List. He's a startup and angel investor guy, but also just incredibly well-read, kind of a modern-day stoic. But one of the things in that book, it talks about leverage, Kyle. And if you look at the history of leverage and you've got to have leverage in any business of substance because it can't just be about Kyle or Brad. And so leverage back in the early days was people. So if you look at like the Egyptian empire and the pyramids, they had to go out, conquer other lands, enslave their people, bring them back. Then their leverage was slaves, basically more people to build the stuff they wanted. And then money was invented and capital. And so now, I mean, we've talked a lot about how do you leverage that to get more? Well, you can invest it, all of those things. Well, now leverage is becoming technology. The fact that we can do this interview right now in two different states, we're using technology to leverage our time. We'll also, when we put this out on the internet, now the podcast, it's we're using technology to leverage the reach. So I think if you look through that lens of creating leverage, back in the day, hard work was physical, manual labor, people leverage. And so I, I did grow up on a farm. I threw square bales. For those that grew up on a farm, you'll know what that means. It's like, they're not even square. Why do they call them square bales? But it sucked. And it was like, I remember throwing those in hundred degree heat in some hay shed with no ventilation, Like it, inhaling like alfalfa. For those that understand alfalfa, probably nobody has a clue what I'm talking about right now. But literally, like, it, it was horrible. And my dad jokes with me, it's like, I saw at a young age, you were trying to figure out how the hell do I get out of here as quickly as possible. But I will say it makes knowledge work, even though it's a different type of calories burnt, it's not the physical muscle building calories. But after a day of zoom coaching calls, trust me, anybody that's done that your brain is fried, right? So I think part of it was, I looked at the evolution. I was like, how do I do less physical manual labor? to get into knowledge. And I think it really ties back, Kyle, to answer your question. Well, if the world of chat GPT and AI is kind of doing away with stuff that even a few years ago, I think would have been like whole careers for people. How do I continue if it's gonna be a knowledge-based economy to level up my knowledge? So I've got to invest in myself. And the cool thing is now YouTube, Audible, Like there's literally full blown universities at people's fingertips. If they want to do the work and increase their knowledge. I remember I read a book, the compound effects by Darren Hardy, still one of my favorites, and he said, based on the average commute, most Americans, if they use that time to learn, as opposed to listen to music or talk radio, could have the equivalent of a PhD in a year and a half. It was like a year and a half or two years. I remember that stuck with me. And so not that I, I love music. I love sports. Not that I don't occasionally veg out, but I have more times than not on that commute. Use that for podcast time, use that for audiobook time. So I think if we're going into a knowledge-based economy, I'd be thinking about how do I constantly upgrade my personal knowledge? And oftentimes, back to networking, knowledge is also connections. You don't have to be the library, you just have to be the librarian. So if in my network of Rolodex, I'll tell you what if i've got somebody that hits me up and like hey i need to figure out how data connections work going from an insurance company into a crm i'm gonna be like let's call my buddy kyle van up and let's talk to him because guess what that's out of my wheelhouse but all you have to do is know the guy or the girl um, that can unlock that knowledge base so that's also one of my selfish hacks in networking is it helps me better serve my clients because now I've got more people that I can go to for set problems to, to find solutions.
0: I love that line. You don't have to be the library, you have to be the librarian because now there's more information than ever at our fingertips, but you have to know how to find it, where to find it. And I think that's the hard work is how do you sift through this enormous universe sized library and find the things of value for people. So great insights. Final question as we wrap up, It's the name of your podcast. It's kind of a philosophy of your company and it's something that you all do. So it's the phrase, do business, do life. Where did that come from? And for the audience listening, so give them a quick primer on what do business, do life means. And then how do they implement that as they take away from this podcast? It's funny,
1: Kyle, we just did a a team breakout meeting on the Friday before the 4th of July. And it's funny, I shared this story and I had never shared it before. So. Funny time. Do business, do life, it's Triad's mission statement. I'll just give you the short, short, like what, how we define it, and then I'll speak to how it came to be. Uh, we believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. We believe that all Triad partners, our team, our strategic partners, our advisors, deserve to experience unlimited growth, freedom, and joy in their business and life. Together, we're changing an industry by building an intimate, highly curated community that redefines what a true partnership can mean. Together we aspire to create life-changing experiences and champagne moments by challenging our members to think differently. So that's our official mission statement on how we define do business, do life at the triad level, selfishly, how it came to be. So I left my prior chapter in life. It was my last day was a day after my 40th birthday. So it was August 14, 2020, incredibly grateful to that chapter. If it wasn't for that chapter this chapter wouldn't be possible. I was there almost a decade and a half, incredible friendships that I still have in that building, incredible friendships and the advisors I connected with during that phase of my life. Part of it was when COVID happened, Kyle, and I know we all experienced this, my normal back to scratching a record, there was a massive scratch in everybody's record, right? It's like, in fact, the record stopped playing for a second. It just hit pause. And I remember that year 2020, had that not happened, I would have had, I believe it was between 70 and 80 nights that were already spoken for, all the different events, everything that was already like blocked in. And for me, remember 13 to seven. So at the time, what would that have been like 10 to four? That was a sacrifice. That was a lot of nights away for family dinners. That was a lot of sports games missed. And, and I just remember looking at defining success. And I think a lot of people define success with the wrong equation. It's it's money and money in the bank. And I do believe that's part of it uh, because if you wanna take care of those you love and create experiences for those you love, you have to have a tool to deploy that. And that's typically money in most of our scenarios. But I remember thinking the trade-off of time and I was really fortunate, Kyle, because I just, most of my clients were 20 years ahead of me. And I remember it's cliche. They said, this goes, so, like, as soon as I was a parent, they're like, this goes so fast don't take it for granted, it'll be gone before you know it. And those like, it kind of like echoed in my head, almost like this warning. I'd been pretty damn intentional to that point, but I remember thinking, man, at this point, I had like eight summers left with Bron, my oldest. And i just, it kept exponentially growing and stacking. And I just thought, man, I don't think this is the trade-off that I'm willing to make. And so do business, do life, was just a different lens to look through it was what if i could build a business that integrates with life not this work-life balance that i believe is kind of a lie that a lot of people tell themselves i'm i'm working so i can provide versus i'm working and providing and being there for the important things it was actually in the foothills of the smoky mountains is the truth that where that was coined it was my going away it was my 40th birthday party it was actually kind of a combo between a an anniversary and a birthday that we did in july And Sean, my business partner, was out there. and We had a friend named Justin, and we were hiking. And just it was a couple's hike, the six of us. I remember somewhere in that conversation, we said, well, wouldn't you just want to do business with people you want to do life with? And that stuck with Sean and I. And then as we were forming Triad, we said, what if we form a business that not only helps our team do that, but our Triad members do that? Because... The financial services industry is an industry of burnout. It's an industry of just grind, 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 production, 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 get recognized at some industry thing. And then divorce rates are higher, alcoholism's higher because it's the medication that people do from burning out. And we said, if we can help people build a business they don't wanna retire from, a business that blesses their life, that doesn't become their life where they thought about it from the get-go, why does this business exist to serve my family? We said, I think that'll resonate with the right people out there that we want to do business and do life with. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate one of our members like, man, you guys are creating a movement, not an FMO. And so when we start to hear how that's impacted in you know almost three short years, a number of our members and how it's really resonating, you heard part of that success story from the podcast with Anthony. Another triad member tom he was legitimately setting records from a production standpoint and his wife said um, his wife shelly said if tom keeps running at this rate he's going to kill himself and so here we are a year later and he's taken like month-long vacations in florida at his second home because we showed him a framework to create that space and empower others and now his team has career tracks and so I could go on and on because I'm super passionate about this Kyle, but yeah, really do business, do life is, I mean, we're starting with the end in mind and we're we're retrofitting it versus do business and hope I've got a little time left to do life on the other side. Yeah, that's it's kind of the origin story and, and how it's gotten to the point it is today.
0: Oh man, I love it. I appreciate you sharing. I could talk to you for probably another hour and, and, and more. So we'll just have to have you back on at a different point Uh, as we're out of time today. But as we wrap up, I'm so thankful that you would join the show and and come and share this experience and knowledge with our audience here at Connected. Uh, But Before we wrap up, anything you want to shout out or anything you want to plug at the end of this year? Uh, Kyle, I'd just say thank you. You've
1: uh, shown the spotlight on me during this interview, um, but I just want to say as as a guy that also does a podcast and does a lot of interviews, um, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So those of you listening in, Uh, I think it's really apparent that Kyle and the team at Milemarker care, otherwise they wouldn't invest their time, their money, their resources into doing conversations like this and and putting it out to all of you. So just thanks for the work you're doing,
0: Kyle. I've learned a lot from you when it comes to technology and finance and thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much for joining. Well, everybody, this has been another episode of Connected. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.